Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, my name is John Calvert, and I've been invited here to share with you something that happened to me several years ago that changed my life. The summer of 93, I was painting houses in Auburn, Pennsylvania, and it was 120 degrees outside. I didn't know that at the time. I'd been painting houses in Maine, working 12 and 14 hour days. So I was just continuing my own habit. And over 22 people died that weekend. I didn't get the numbers exactly, but I was to have been number 23. And actually I did, I did die. And the lady whose house I was painting, she was being driven to the next town over to Shimokin by her grandson to pick up her prescription from the pharmacy where she had always gone all her life. And the young man pulled the car over to the side of the road and stopped. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, I don't know. He said, somebody just tapped me on the shoulder. There's something bad wrong at the house and we've got to go back right now. So he turned the car around and they sped back to the house. And of course I heard all this much later, but he said, John, you, you had no pulse. You were breathing, your body was cold. You were dead, you had been dead obviously for quite some time. So they called the paramedics, they did the paddles, they jump-started me, took me to the ICU, put intubation in my lungs and forced IVs in my arms and put me on a respirator, did CPR until they could get me to ICU. In the ICU they packed hot blankets on my cold body for three days to try to bring my body core temperature back up. I don't have any recollection of being in the hospital I do remember being where I was for three days and, and nights. I vividly remember that. And that's what I wanted to share with you. I woke up in a very bright place, a lightning bright place. And I knew instantly several things. I knew where I was. I knew who was in front of me and I dared not look up. I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I was terrified, I was shaking. Uh, I, I could see myself as God sees me. I knew he could see through me like I was glass. Of course, he always could. But suddenly I had his perspective on me. And it was awful because I could see in myself all of the guilt that I carried, the pride, the vanity, the emptiness, the, the desperate loneliness, the anger, the selfishness, the nothingness that my life had become. And I, I knew that life was over for me, and I knew that I was before God. And this terrified me because I knew from my upbringing that you're judged and then you go to hell or heaven. But I didn't anticipate that for me. For about, this is difficult to say, for about the first two-thirds of the time as time goes by on earth, of course there's no time there, so I'm judging by what happened on earth. For about the two-thirds of the time, I would say, I was on my face and experiencing 
from their perspective what I had done to others on earth, whether it was fear, intimidation, neglect, sarcasm, harsh criticism, uh, coarse jokes, uh, ridicule. I saw their faces and I felt what I had put them through at that point and I was made to feel everything and it all came at once and it continued like what seemed forever until I was a sobbing mess and begging this to stop. I, I knew I couldn't put the blame anywhere. I couldn't shift it to somebody else. There was nobody else there. I knew it was all on my shoulders, that I was responsible and that whatever judgment I got would be fair. And I fully anticipated hell for me. And I agreed with God that that would be fair in my case. I had finally come to agreement with God about something. I begged it to stop and I said, please stop. I, I, can't, I can't stand this anymore. I can't take anymore. I get it. I understand. And I'm sorry. I'm really and truly sorry. And at that point it did stop and, and the remorse and the anguish kind of drifted away and I became calm in my spirit and I heard a voice say to me, you have not fulfilled your purpose here. And I said, what was my purpose? It was like a knee-jerk reaction. It was like a, I didn't really think about it. I just, but I did want to know. I was curious. I didn't have a clue. I truly didn't have a clue how to live, what life was about, what it was to be a man or what my goals or purpose could have been. So I said, what was my purpose? And this voice said to me, the same as every man, you were put on the earth to take care of the earth. And come to find out later, Adam did tend the garden and keep it. Even before the fall, he had work to do. We as men are here to take care of the earth. It's one of our responsibilities as men. And that was very personal. He said, you, you're not to strip mine the earth. You're not to pollute the earth. You're not to destroy your home. And I was being indicted because I was responsible. I was a litterer. I was one that didn't care about nature or environment at all. And this was a beautiful home that God had created for me to live and enjoy. And he said, secondly, you're here for the animals. They look up to you. You're the one with the spirit. You're the one with reason, with intelligence, with the strength to change things, the ability to protect them and take care of them and do for them. They don't have that ability. And yet you destroy species after species. And I knew that I was responsible, partly responsible. I had hunted for sport. I had no concern for animals. I never showed any compassion for animals. I didn't have any compassion for animals or men. And he said, thirdly and most importantly, you're here for each other. And you, this imperative, you, uh, I sent to be part of the answer. You've just been part of the problem. And I couldn't do anything with that because it was on my shoulders. And I was just grieving over it. But this, this faded away too, and he began to try to teach me. He, he began to, to start like a, a fresh beginning to, to teach me why I didn't understand at the time. But I couldn't get it. It's like a professor trying to illustrate geometry to a two-year-old. Uh, no matter how fine a teacher he might be, the two-year-old's not going to get it. 
And that's what I was. And I couldn't understand any of the concepts that came at me. I still wouldn't look up. I couldn't look up. I couldn't face him. The floor to my right, out of the peripheral vision, I could see the floor opening up into a video, what looked to me like a video presentation from the top of the day that I was born. And I began to watch the day that I was born. He took me all the way back to square one. This was 1959 in Wharton, Texas. The doctor had on green gloves. I remember green gloves. And I kind of marveled at that. I'd never seen that in an operating room. It was an operating room. And he pulled my mother's face up to him. And she's in a lot of agony. They hadn't given her any painkillers because, as he said, you've hemorrhaged so much. You've lost so much blood, and, and I don't have any AB negative blood. I have none. If I take the baby cesarean, you're going to bleed to death, he told her. And if I take the baby by abortion, piece by piece, of course, the baby's going to die. And I still don't know if I can stop your bleeding. Tell me what to do, he told her. Tell me what to do. And 23 years old, my mother said, I've lived my life. Don't kill my baby. So the doctor goes out into the hallway. And remember, this is 1959, and fathers weren't allowed in. It was an operating room. So he goes out in the hallway. My father's pacing up and down. And he tells the same story to my father. My father's like, wait, 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 hold up. I don't know that baby, but I'm in love with the woman. So don't kill the woman. Do all you can for the woman. Well, the doctor's coming back into the operating room. Now I can see his mouth moving behind his mask. And I know, I just know by seeing that picture that he's praying. He's really praying because he's desperate. He has been given two conflicting directives by both parents and he's sworn to do no harm. Then he feels that someone's about to die and he feels responsible. He gets back in the operating room and there's a little old man laying on a gurney next to my mom on the operating table. And the doctor's livid. He says, what's he doing in here? How could you bring him in here? This is a sterile environment. He's screaming at the nurse. Of course, he's screaming because he's scared. And the nurse is scared too now. And she says, well, didn't you send him in here? The little old man lifts his head and says, hurry, son. There's not much time. And the doctor's screaming at him. He's time. We're out of time. They have no time. There's no time left. And the little old man says very calmly, I'm AB negative. Give her a direct transfusion. And so that's what they did. And this scene fades out and the floor goes back to solid white. And this voice says to me, I was there that day. And I saw you polluted in your own blood. And I said to you, when I saw you in your own blood, I said to you, live. He said, and by the way, who do you think tapped that young man on the shoulder and turned him around to come back and find you at your heat stroke? He said, that was me. And he showed me other instances, snapshots of my life, where he had, he had to step in to save me from destruction. The time I overdosed on heavy drugs. The time I woke up in the curve of an overpass because I'd driven too long and fell asleep. The time a man put his knife to my throat and threatened to kill me. And he stopped that situation. All my life, he's been stepping in. And he said, but I'm not going to do that for you anymore. This is it for you. You're going, to, you're going to get it or you're not going to get it. 
But this is absolutely your last chance to understand your purpose. Well, he got my total attention with that statement because now he was talking about a last chance, a chance. And I clung on to the word chance like you would a drowning man on a life preserver. Chance, another chance. And I was totally focused on what he wanted from me. And I totally listened and was zeroed in to his will and to his word. And he began again to try to teach me. He said, when you were born, you came out, you were screaming until they put you to your mother and then you were satisfied. I gave you that appetite. That's the first appetite I gave you. It's physical. Then he showed me myself as a toddler and, and I'm doing this. I'm, what does that mean? Before we can even speak, I was saying, pick me up and hold me. I want emotional closeness. I, I need love. I need someone to hold me. He said, that's an emotional appetite. Second appetite, I gave you that. The third appetite, he showed me myself as a, a little bit bigger child saying, why daddy, why? I throw the ball up, it comes back down. The ball floats in the bathtub, but the cornbread sinks in a glass of milk. Why, why, why? It's an intellectual hunger when our brain comes to life and our computer needs data. He said, intellectual, third appetite. He said, John, the fourth appetite that I gave you is a spiritual appetite and you've been ignoring this all your life. And this is the reason why you overdo it on the other three. You're a, a workaholic trying to feed that intellectual hunger. You're a bed hopper trying to feed that emotional drive. Uh, you overdo it on cigarettes and booze and drugs and stuff. Everything you can imagine into your mouth. Even, even cigarettes is a hand-to-mouth feeding mechanism, he showed me. You've been starving spiritually. And this is why you overdo it. This is why you're so out of balance. This is why nothing works in your life. And I looked at myself for the first time and I said, you know, God, you're right. Well, duh, he would be right. But he didn't seem to mind that. He knew I was dumb as a box of rocks. I didn't have a single clue in the universe. I was dumb as a doorknob. This was my first inkling of what it was to be a man the very beginnings of what to build on. He showed me other things. He, he, he allowed me to look up uh, and, and wiped my tears away and accepted me. And I could tell that he really loved me. And it wasn't about right and wrong anymore. It was about he and I having a relationship. And this was the instant that I changed in my heart. And he began to show me things that I can't even put into words. How the universe is, is all one pattern from an atom to a solar system to a galaxy to a group of galaxies. It's the same pattern. You can see it all the way up how he stands back from time. He can see before the garden all the way past revelations. He's not bound by time. We're bound by time. But if you want to fast and pray, get in the spirit of God, you can get above the line to where you're not trapped by time. Your spirit can be free to commune with him. He showed me these things. He allowed me to ask questions. When I looked up,
I saw the most enormous person on the most enormous throne, as big as the stars, a big white throne and a huge white flowing robe with a face like a sun, like looking into the sun, but it wasn't a yellow sun like we have. It was a blue-white sun, I remember. And there was someone sitting next to him that looked just like him, but he was a little bit smaller, but he never spoke. He was observing. And he had a face just like God's face. And he allowed me to ask questions. And I said, well, I, looking back on it, I wish I had said, well, what about Hindus? What about Muslims? What about Buddhists? What about, you know, I had questions about those things, but it didn't occur to me at the time. I was dealing with accountability. And it occurred to me to ask, well, what about that native in Africa that's never heard about God, Jesus, Bible, church? How's he going to be accountable? He said, your perspective is wrong. When that native in Africa does what he knows is wrong, that's how he'll be accountable. He knows it's wrong to take his neighbor's goat. I put that in his heart to know. And when he goes against his conscience and what he knows is wrong, that's how he'll be accountable. He has conscience just like you have conscience. And what you mistakenly call intuition he has it too, but it's not intuition. When you leave the house and think, oh, I better get my keys, or I better get my driver's license, or I better get this or that, and then you decide, no, I don't have time, and you rush off, and then the policeman pulls you over for a broken tail light, and you don't have your license, and you say, and I say, I knew that was going to happen. Why? Because he knew, and he was trying to tell you, but you just didn't listen. Women, when they're in a room with the wrong kind of man, they get this sick feeling, I better get out of here, I'm not safe here, I don't feel right here. Why? Because that's God trying to speak to you to protect you. Men are given a greater physical strength to protect and defend. Women are given that greater voice of God to protect and defend. And when I fail to listen to my wife's intuition, what I call intuition, I suffer for it because she was put there to help me. Well, he went on, he said, when you receive the one that I will send for you, it will not be 50-50, as you've learned from man, this is not my will. It will be 100%, 100%. You will totally devote yourself to her wants, her needs, her occupational needs, her educational needs, her medical needs. You will delight and surprise and romance her, her clothing, her jewelry, everything about her attention, consideration. This will motivate her to seek for ways to serve you and you will both be free from selfishness. And this kind of a relationship is the only way to represent Christ and His church or my relationship with you. They say after three days and nights that I sat up in the ICU and pulled all the lines out of my veins, the intubation out of my lungs, disconnected myself from the heart monitor and all the machines. Because he had told me, your body cannot survive much longer without your spirit. I didn't really understand that, but all of a sudden, I was back in the hospital. I don't remember this either, because I was not well in my head. I was sick. A heat stroke is a literal stroke. I lost all of my childhood memories. It took me a year to learn how to walk and talk again. 
But I pulled out all of these machines and walked out into the emergency room and scribbled my name on a release form, they say. Walked out into the parking lot in my beautiful new hospital gown. I thank God I have no recollection of that day. <laughs> and a pastor that I didn't know corralled me. He had been sent by a friend to pray with me. And he corralled me and took me to his home. I was there six weeks before I came back to myself, my senses. And when I woke up and came to myself again, I was in a little white chapel service on a hill in, in Auburn, Pennsylvania, surrounded by people I'd never met, sitting next to this pastor I didn't know, wearing a brown suit that wasn't mine. But I thought, hey, after what I've been through, this really isn't all that weird. I decided to go with it. I knew I was back on earth, and I was alive. And I had another chance to live for God. And a little old man was looking down at me, saying, Brother Calvert, will you bring our message this morning? Now remember, this is a stroke. I couldn't lift my head. I couldn't lift my right arm. I had to drag my right leg. I couldn't speak right. And I kind of peered up at him like this, and I said, Are you talking to me? I couldn't believe he was talking to me. And I heard a little voice in my heart that said, remember. And I was thrilled with joy at that point because I did remember. And because I could hear his voice in my heart. And I've been able to hear that voice ever since. And I knew I had relationship with my father and everything was going to be all right. And I pulled myself up with my good arm and my head came up and I got strength in my right arm and my leg grew strong and I stood and I preached to these people the reality of Jesus Christ and the love of God. And once through, I sang a little song. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. And when I got through, I couldn't lift my head. I couldn't lift my arm. I had to drag my right leg. Because it was his time to minister. And it had nothing to do with me. It was just him. And it was the most beautiful experience of my life on earth to that point, to be used totally by God and to have nothing to do with it personally. He shared his message for those people and he knew what to say to each one and I was just a vessel. Well, this went on, uh, word got out. Pastors were calling this pastor's house where I was staying for the next six, half, six and a half weeks from every denomination, Nazarene, Baptist, Catholic, German Eldership, Church of God, uh, Methodist, Lutheran, from every denomination, asking, will this young man come to our church? Can he come to our church? And of course, I was willing to go. I, I, it wasn't ever the same message, and it was always him. I got to liken that a lot. Well, the years went by. I left Pennsylvania, went to Arkansas and then Texas and eventually became uh, 
a lieutenant staff officer in charge of uh, investigations and, and training in the field for security corporation and a certified bodyguard, a licensed DMT. Because see, I had made this deal with God. I'm not going to date anymore. I don't deserve to be around a lady. I don't know how to be around a lady. Uh, I have no clue as to understanding of women. And lest I offend again, um, if you want me married, send her to me. I'm not interested in any games using or being used. I don't want a date. If you want me married, if you want covenant for me, bring her to me. This will be, I'm, remember I'm stupid. This will be my sign. So four years goes by and I'm just working, building myself up in my little job. Doesn't pay very much, but that's all I had to run with. And I was called in on a murder scene in Corpus Christi. Marriott Corporation owned the Hampton, Fairfield, and Residence Inn all side by side on the same property. Someone had come into the Residence Inn and killed the night clerk, blew his head off with a shotgun. Terrible murder. Well, they didn't have key card locks or cameras or guards, no kind of security measures. Corpus Christi was totally unprepared for this type of violence. And the night clerk said, we quit. We're walking. We're out of here. We're through. We're not safe. And Marriott Corporation said, no, we can't shut the doors on three hotels. We'll call in bodyguards. Well, that's where I came in. So, three o'clock in the morning, I'm called in. We're discussing the parameters of this case with the other lieutenant and the captain. And here she came across the parking lot at three in the morning to get changed for a 20. She told me much later that she, she said, when I saw you, I knew you were the one. And I, I heard a voice say, that's the one, go to him. Now she had never approached anyone, stranger on the street, wouldn't have, ever. That's not her personality. And I was not gonna approach her. That was my covenant deal with God. Well, she, she nudged her way through all these men, these detectives and investigators and bodyguards, stuck out her hand and introduced herself. And I got lost in her eyes and felt an electric shock from her hand. And my captain nudged me and said, hey, we got work to do. And then I was assigned to her for three months. Now, it still didn't dawn on me that God had done something here. I didn't have a clue. Remember, I'm stupid. And so about three weeks later, as I got to know this girl in the workplace, with no sexual politics or dating or any of that, got to know her by spending so much time with her as her bodyguard, it began to dawn on me in reflection, hey, she came to me. And she came directly to me through this crowd of people. This could be the one. And I had to face that. I had to deal with that. And then as, as the weeks turned into months, I began to realize that I was in love with this girl. And I never had had anything like that in my heart for a person. that, And it totally messed me up. Forty years old, I went to my mom. And I was crying. I was a mess. I said, Mom, I don't understand this. Tell me, how do you know if it's the forever thing? I don't want any games. I don't want to be used. I don't want to use anyone. How do you know if it's the forever love? And she was quiet a long time. And she said, well, son, can you live without her? And I thought about that. I, I had had 40 years without her, but 
No, I couldn't get a picture of going back to work and her not being there. I couldn't live without her. It didn't make any sense. I said, no, no can do. She said, well, then you've answered your own question. So I ran to the store and I got the ring and I put it on the charge card and I ran to her house. She was just waking up, working nights, sleeping days. I was working nights too, but I couldn't sleep. And I picked her up and I swung her around. I said, I just need to ask you one thing. She said, yes. I said, no, no, this is serious. I got She said, yes, yes. The answer is yes. What took you so long? <laughs> Again, she knew before I did. And the past three years has been the most beautiful time of my life that I can remember. Of course, I don't remember being a child. But it is just exactly what he said it would be when you let him do it. The Word of God says, he doeth all things well. When you let him do it. See, I'm going to be a little bit different tomorrow from the things that I learned today. So how do I know who I'm going to be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now? How do I know who I'm going to need 20 years from now? But I don't know, but he knows. And if you just release everything to his care, if you'll leave it with him and not pick it up again, if you'll trust him, trust proves love. Trust proves love. So if you trust him to be God and know what's best, he will come through. And it'll be so much more beautiful than you could ever do on your own. This is what I learned, along with the rest. But I think it's important now that I clarify something. I don't consider myself to be anything special for several reasons, not the least of which is I wasted 35 years. That's nothing to be proud of. And because I hear God's voice in my heart, that's nothing unusual either for Christians. If you're not a Christian, what happens is when you're born again, Christ comes in to you and sups with you and you with him. There's relationship there. But Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. This is not an unusual position to be in. There are thousands, maybe millions of Christians around the world that hear the same voice that I hear. This just happened to be my conversion experience. But it's not anything that's unavailable to you. This is His will for you as well. He wants relationship with everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. He made you. He died for you. He loves you. You may not be regenerated. You may not be born again. But you're still a child made by God. And to Him, you'll always be a child. See, I didn't realize until that day before Him that His impression of me really mattered. One of the things he said to me was, you think I've been angry with you all your life. And I didn't even realize that I felt that way, but I looked inside and sure enough, he was right again. I had a perspective of this angry God with a trident and a big white beard dangling me over the flames of hell, about to drop me at any moment, probably from my upbringing. He said, I've not been angry with you. I've been disappointed in you. 
And I never knew until that instant that it was vitally important to me how he felt about me. Apart from going to hell, apart from judgment, apart from any right and wrongs or rewards or crowns, it's, it's basically, fundamentally, the most important thing to me, how God, my Father that made me, feels about me. This is fundamental to every person on earth. We are created that way. We didn't come from monkeys. We came from the creation of God. And there's a part in us that's missing until we reconnect with Him and find relationship with Him again through Jesus Christ. There's no other bridge that will bring you to God. There's no other sacrifice that can pay for what you've done, for what I've done. There's no other miracle that can complete you, fulfill you, and fulfill your eternal destiny. You'll never truly be happy, never truly happy, until you find your purpose here. First thing he said to me, you have not fulfilled your purpose here. I didn't even know what my purpose was and could not know until I found relationship with him and could communicate and commune with him. And he could re reveal to me my purpose. See, you have a specific purpose. You're going to see people that I'll never see. You're going to touch lives that I'll never touch. You're on your own mission. And no one else can fulfill your duties but you. That's what's so beautiful about you being you. You are special. But there's a fulfillment there that you've got to find. For your sake, for his sake, for the world's sake, you were put here for a reason to help. Well, since that time, I've heard that voice countless times. Just the day-to-day -day living, I'll be driving down the freeway, he'll say, stop, get off, turn around and go back. I hear it, I hear it, and I do it. I know better than to disobey that voice. I don't want to disobey it. That's part of my relationship responsibilities. So I get off and I turn around and I go back, and he points her out. That little black lady digging in the trash can over there, gathering up cans. Go give to her. I hear this. So I go over to the convenience store, I pull up and park, get out, hand the lady $20. That's all I had on me. She begins to cry. Oh, my social security check got lost. They were going to turn off my heat. I've been praying about this. I said, well, he's been listening. He's been listening. He told me to come and give it to you. It's just that simple. Sitting on the couch watching a praise service and I hear the voice, get up and go out. I'm out the door, pulling on my tennis shoes and out the door. I said, beach nut or bisonette? He said, bisonette, this was in Houston. So I'm walking down this dark street alone in bisonette, Houston. And here came a street walker, young girl up to me. I don't know what she was thinking, but she approached me with a smile and I just looked at her and said, don't you think it's time you had a relationship with Jesus? And like a little child, she looked up at me and said, yes, the tears started to come. And then something came over her eyes, the demon within, the devil that was tormenting her with prostitution, the bondage she was under. And she became frightened to death of me, like I was attacking her, and ran screaming into a wrought iron gate. 
trying to run through this locked wrought iron gate. It wasn't me, it was the Spirit of Christ that was tormenting, not her, but the evil spirit that had control of her. And before I turned around and left, I said, remember, he sent me to you. Just remember, he sent me to you. I became a flight attendant. I've flown for a couple of different airlines. Most recently, I flew international for a very large airline. Sitting on the jump seat, it was grieving my spirit to hear these other flight attendants want to share their lifestyles of ungodliness and their coarse jokes and just became grieving to my spirit because I care about them. I have a concern for their soul, but I can't communicate the love of God while they're involved in lewd talking and filth. So eventually my wife just said, John, why don't you put the shoe on the other foot? You know, why don't you smarten up? Why don't you share your lifestyle with them? You're proactive as a flight attendant. Why don't you get proactive with people on their personal level? Be first. I thought, well, why did I have to hear that from her? I should have figured that out. See, but he sent me her. He sent me her. I needed to hear it. So then I began to share what happened to me in 93. And whoever didn't want to listen would get up and leave. Or they would tune me out or they'd tell me, you know, I don't believe that. I don't, I'm not interested in that. And I'd shut up. But many times, I'd look at them and the tears are just rolling down their face. Because really, in their heart, they wanted what I had. Restored relationship with their father. And one man that was living an aberrant lifestyle, he said to me, you know, you've, you've made me rethink my whole life. You've made me re-examine what I believe. I don't think I believe what I thought I believed. I said, well, that's the start, you know. God's just waiting to hear from you anytime. And while we're on that, God will take anything you bring Him. He'll take your anger. You can be angry. He'll take your disappointment. You can sob out to Him. You can cry out to Him. You can be sad. It's okay. God will take your praise. He'll take your adoration. He'll take your frustration. He'll take your needs, the problems that you're experiencing, your financial hardship, your marriage problems. He'll take anything you bring Him. He just wants you to bring Him. Just come to Him. Relationship. Well, eventually I met this flight attendant named Chris Freds. And after she heard the story, she said, Would you mind coming to my house and sharing this, what happened to you, with some friends of mine? I'll have a little barbecue and, and you can... I said, Sure. Sure, where do you live? Grand Rapids. Well, that's a three-hour drive, but that's okay. Sure, I'll come. So we did that last summer, and I showed up, and she had 52 friends in her backyard. This was not a little barbecue, and I was nervous because it was a group of people. But I shared, like always, you know, just what happened. And while we're on that point, you know, the Word of God says, we'll overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony. Well, we know what the blood of the Lamb is, but how do you overcome by your testimony? It's this way, as far as I know. David said, I call to remembrance my song in the night. It's good for us to relive the moments of deliverance, to relive what God has done in our life. 
we overcome and gain strength and gain faith and gain power by not listening to the lies of the devil, by reiterating what God has done in our life. Then we can look back over all these accomplishments of God and say, this is not that big a deal. This is just the same smutty-faced devil trying to sell me a bill of goods. I don't have to listen to this liar. He's just a liar. There's no truth in him. He's the father of lies. So by reliving your testimony and sharing it out, it comes back to you. God will fill you with more strength and faith and the ability to stand. You get stronger from the experience. Well, so this was her little barbecue, 52 people. And her pastor heard about it. And he contacted me and said, would you write this down and send it to me? Let me pray over it. And I did that. And he called me a couple of months later and he said, I was praying about preaching on a scripture when John the Baptist is in prison and he's discouraged now, even though he announced the coming of the Lamb, he's discouraged now and he's sending his disciples to say, are you the one to Jesus? Are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John this, the deaf are made to hear, the blind receive sight, and the dead are raised. And the pastor said, when I saw that, the Holy Spirit said to me, you need to call John, because he can talk about when the dead are raised. So I did. I went to his church, and it was so big, and they had so much going on, they had to have two morning services. So I shared at the morning service and then the service after that. But it all came clear for me after the service. We ministered to some people, prayed with some people, and everybody was gone except for one teenage boy sitting in the very back in the middle, had his head down, obviously waiting to be ministered to, waiting very patiently, very politely, until the pastor and I would come down that center aisle and he knew we would stop and deal with him. So we did, and, and we stopped, and the pastor was talking with him, and I walked up. And looking up, with tears in his eyes, this teenage boy said, Devin was his name. Devin said, the Lord's called me to preach or to minister, but I don't know what that means. And the preacher said, well, was it something like John did this morning? He said, oh, no, I don't think it's anything that big or that drastic. And I said, Devin... Could you share with your very best friend the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you if your very best friend really wanted to hear it? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I said, well, that's all God's asking you for. And then I could relate to him how just one-on-one -on, -one on a jump seat led to a barbecue, led to a church service, and now this opportunity to share with you. See, if you're faithful in the little things, God will give you more. It's like the parable of the talents. You don't bury your talent. You use your talent. You use your gifts. You use everything you have and everything you are to share who God is in your life. He said, in all thy ways acknowledge Him and He will direct thy paths. The promises of God are conditional. You can't just sit back and do nothing. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct thy paths. If you walked into a party and there's all your friends, and your very best friend showed up, would you ignore them? Would you let them wander around aimlessly and find their own food and drink? No. You'd take them by the arm and you'd introduce them around and say, this is so-and-so, my best friend. All my life we've been friends. 
in all your ways acknowledge him. That's what he expects from us. That's only legitimate considering what he paid to restore relationship with us. It's only fair. See, he did what we could not do. He delivered us from sin. He did what we could not do. He took our death payment on himself. He did what we could never do. He suffered the tortures of hell in my place, in your place. And all you get out of it is eternal life, uh, prosperity, relationship with God, peace, happiness, joy, praise, well-being. But I didn't understand it. I'd heard about it all my life and I didn't understand it. To me it was just a faith in a God somewhere, maybe. I hope I go to heaven. hope I've been good enough to... That's all garbage. That's all garbage. We cannot get there. We couldn't get there in the garden. We couldn't get there in 6,000 years of Old Testament history. We couldn't get there in the New Testament without His Holy Spirit. We cannot do it ourselves. So God sent His Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus said, I'm come to give them life, and that more abundantly. It's not just I'm kind of happy. No, it, it's, I'm really fulfilled here. It's abundant life. It's more life than you need, more life than you can use. You have to give it away. You've got extra life in you. What are you going to do with it all? You have to give it away. You want to reach out, not just to the planet, not just to the animals, to each other. See, if we had the love of Christ around this world, be a lot less dying, be a lot less warring, killing. What am I saying? I'm saying it's for you. See, I never would have believed it until he pointed out to me that he loves me. And if you'll just get quiet long enough, if you'll take a glimpse in His Word, anywhere in His Word, if you'll just point your ears and listen, you'll hear it. He loves you. And he, he loves you unconditionally, just the way you are. You don't have to clean up first. You can anyway. Come just as you are. And your whole life begins from that point. Everything you were meant to be will be fulfilled by a power not your own. <laughs> Thank you.